when we spoke about this in, during the summer, the idea we sort of came up with was that we would each speak to our particular areas of interest and I would speak to the visual arts. Um, and up until a few days ago, I thought I would speak specifically about the relationship between aesthetic and non-aesthetic properties, and particularly whether there's a dependency relationship between them. Uh, what philosophical talk is sometimes described as a relationship of supervenience. And very fortunately, I had uh, dinner with Andrew and uh, realised that perhaps it wasn't appropriate to do something that was, I mean, narrowly technical in that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what I'm going to do instead, and I, maybe this is in the spirit of what Matthew's been asking for, is to run past you something which I originally conceived as writing as a short story, um, but perhaps is better cast as a, a thought experiment. Um, I never got around to using it, never got around to writing it, but I think it's useful as a sort of heuristic to try and bring out certain problems that I think, both certain problems and certain possibilities that are distinctive uh, to the visual arts, but may also have relevance um, to these other areas of activity. Okay, so bear with me. So here we are. So I want you to imagine that you're in Tate Modern on a Sunday afternoon. Um, you're one of these many people in along the South Bank. Um, one of six million visitors that go to Tate Modern every year. Um, yeah, perhaps you're in the Turbine Hall, glad for once that it's so empty, uh, maybe because BP has finally stopped uh, these commissions for the Turbine Hall. Um, perhaps you're there, this famous piece by Elias on the Weather Project. Um, or perhaps you're upstairs in one of the main galleries, uh, looking at a piece like Joseph Boyce's Hirschdenkmal, uh, his monument to the stag. Okay, so you've got it. You're there in the, in the Tate, and you're completely absorbed in contemplation of various works that are there. And then an announcement comes over the Tannoy. It might be Nick Sorota, it might be Chris Durkin, the director. Um, and they've been mulling this over, and the gallery just owns too many works. I think it's about 73,000 at the last um, at the last count. And so they've come up with this new idea for how to deaccession some of the works. So the announcement comes over the Tannoy saying, everyone can take one piece home with them. <laughs> and, uh, so what do you do? I mean, you may be really lucky. You're in a room. There's a nice Matisse painter, um, the inattentive reader. And you can tuck it under your arm. Uh, other works, I think, would be a bit more challenging. Uh, <laughs> something like Tony Craig's Stag. Um, you might, if you're very clever, think you'll take Myrna Hatoum's Incommunicado because you notice it's on wheels. Um, <laughs> or you might take something that is very, very easy to transport. So I don't know if you know these works, early pieces by Martin Creed. Uh, this is his sheet of A4 paper crumpled into a ball, work number 88. And I've actually put two images up. So on the, on the left, uh, if you contact Creed's gallery, which is housed in the Beards in Piccadilly, and purchase one, this is how it will arrive, and you'll get a signed sheet of paper so that you know that Martin Creed himself crumpled up the sheet of A4. <laughs> or my particular favourite, uh, some blue tack leaded, rolled into a ball and depressed against the wall. This is work number 79. Um, okay, so you've, you've um, pocketed, or you're pushing, or carrying your prized possession, and you make your way over the Millennium Bridge, and you go back to where it is you live, back to your house or your flat. And then the question I've been mulling over is, well, what happens after a period of time starts to elapse? You know, not a couple of hours, but a couple of weeks, a couple of months. What happens to these objects? Um, you know, of course, at first you stand back, you admire it, you show it to your friends, you say, how fantastic, you've got a Martin Creed or a Monahatu. Um, 
you know, what, what's the fate of these objects once they're taken out of the, of the, the, the environment of the, of the gallery or the museum? Um, so I would say with the Matisse, it's, you know, you're pretty confident you put it on your wall, its, its status is relatively stable. But I think the others are slightly more problematic. And I can even imagine a situation, and this is what I was picturing in the short story, that even a work as exquisitely crafted as the Monohar tomb, after a sufficient period of time, it just becomes another thing in the house. You start throwing your coat over it when you come in, or you start to gather dust. It, it somehow starts to lose its status as an art object and falls back into being what Danto describes as a mere real thing, just another physical object in the world. Um, yeah, so that's a question we can ask ourselves. You know, would would these return back to being mere objects, or would they remain compelling presences that, that sustain the type of significance that we accord to them in an art world environment? And, uh, and this is just, just in case you think I'm over-egging the case, this is the famous example of uh, the Martin Kippenberger piece that was destroyed by a cleaner, yeah. um, uh, an overzealous cleaner in the Museum of Ostwald in Dortmund. Um, she scrubbed away. Um, and uh, probably the most famous example is Boyce's Fet Ecker. And you can probably imagine why a cleaner would have got rid of this piece. Um, uh, but I think what those examples show is that for some works of contemporary art at least, um, they're not things that can be securely placed in the category of artwork. Uh, there can be situations in which that, that category is problematic. Okay, so how does one, what does one do with a thought experiment or a story like that. I, mean, I think you can read it negatively as if artworks deprived of the institutional frame of the museum or the sustaining medium of contemporary art discourse are revealed to be objects lacking intrinsic value. So the, the value is simply created by what goes on in the museum and we discover them to be really not that important after all, just pieces of blue tack or scrumpled up pieces of paper. Um, but I'm going to try running the opposite tack, which is to say well, maybe the moral of the tale is that contemporary art practice extends to include the situation of its site or encounter. Um, so in the case of much traditional art, up to and including the Matisse, the meaningful relations are often seen to be internal to the work. So if you think of the paradigmatic modernist artwork, then it's the easel painting. It's an essentially portable object that you can move from place to place that's indifferent to the site of its location. So the meaningful relations, the relationships that take place within the physical frame. Um, you know, we look inside the work to see what's valuable and significant. But I think it's the case with much contemporary art practice that it extends to include a range of different situations or sites of encounter um, that include not only the physical presence of the work in the gallery, but also its wider discursive context. So I'm just going to give you two examples. Uh, back in the Turbine Hall, this is Doris Salcedo, Salcedo's um, Shibboleth. Um, which, I mean, the title gives us a lot of clues, but, you know, she's an artist that comes from Bogota in Colombia, and a lot of her work addresses the, the political uh, violence in her own country, particularly the kidnappings. And this is continuous with a body of work that's intended to address these larger social and political um, questions, and then one, I'm sure you've all seen, the either way, sunflower seeds. Um, so again, the context for a work like this, um, which, I've got the number here, yeah, it consists of a hundred million handcrafted porcelain sculptures. Each of these were made individually, not by IOA himself, but by a, a massive team of assistants. And I think you start to get a grip on what IOA is doing in a work like this when a critic or someone else points you towards 
the imagery of the Cultural Revolution. Um, so Chairman Mao was often depicted as the sun, and then the people are like the sunflower that turn to um, that turn to follow Chairman Mao wherever he goes. Um, so you know, there's a connection between the sheer abundance of the individual parts of this sculpture, and um, which elude individual identification, and this connection to propaganda images when you think of the people um, as sunflowers. And I think that also holds true for some of the other pieces we looked at, like uh, Monahatu's Incommunicado, uh, whose meaning depends in part on our ability to make connections with her upbringing in Beirut to Palestinian parents and the themes of claustrophobia and displacement that she mobilizes in her work. So if on the older, um, in my field really, it's a modernist conception of art that we associate with figures like Clement Greenberg, the meaningful relations <coughs> are conceived as internal to the work, then the role of the critic uh, is often sustained by his or her ability to respond with appropriate sensitivity to the formal features of the work. Um, it's the critic's capacity to disclose to us things that are there, to make them visible to us, um, that form part of the, 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 the manifest visual properties of the work. Um, and I mean, there I'm going out of my territory, but I, I believe there's, there's quite close affinities between that conception of the critic um, and the practice of close reading defended by figures like um, F.R. Leavis, I think, of the scrutiny group. Um, and actually, I thought with um, Andrew's piece, in some sense, it was a close reading of a close reading, you know, uh, very much an explication of the text. Um, anyway, so, <laughs> so the question I'm, I'm sort of throwing out there is whether this model of criticism works for contemporary art practice or practice in this expanded field. I mean, whatever this person's doing, <laughs> that sort of close scrutiny perhaps isn't going to disclose what's significant about um, uh, Salcedo's shibboleth. Um, so if I'm right then that these changes in recent and contemporary art practice have effectively undermined the older model of criticism, then, yeah, I mean, I think I want to say that the critic's got no special authority in establishing the existence, identity, and persistent conditions of contemporary works of art, which have often got a very unstable um, ontological status. But they do have a, a, an indispensable role in situating the work in an appropriate discursive context. Um, so we're ever more dependent on the provision of an interpretive framework that allows us to engage with the ideas that inform the work. And this is the key thing for me, that ideas that can't simply be read off the visual appearance of the work. So no amount of close scrutiny of what's there in front of you on its own is going to give you access to that, those um, generative ideas. Now, whether that in itself constitutes the creativity of criticism, uh, I'm not so sure. Um, I mean, at its worst, contemporary criticism simply becomes part of the industry of promotion around artist work and so much of what you read that ports to be criticism is actually a puff. It's just you know, giving you a sort of a sales pitch for an artist's work. Um, but I think at its best, it can also open up new possibilities of interpreting and understanding contemporary works of art, and especially those that break with tradition or that open up new ground. And it just seems to me without the discourse of criticism, you don't really have uh, an appropriate way in uh, to many of the puzzling and perplexing forms of contemporary art practice. Okay, that's me. Thank you.